Hello and welcome to CBS Radio Mystery Theater from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. The CBS Radio Mystery Theater presents... E.G. Marshall. This is the story of a god. There have been many gods since the dawn of civilization, but no god bore so strange a name as the one you're going to meet right now. No god before him looked and talked the way this god did in the beginning of mankind's 21st century. Yes, this is the story of a future god. Not a very distant future because his official recorded birth is July the 19th 1977. Like most gods, history has obscured the mundane facts of his beginning, the place of his birth, the names of his parents, even the full name they gave him. Only one name survived, the family name, Smith. What is that thing, Smith? What have you got in that glass box? It's a world, Luke. A what? A world. A world I made all by myself. Smith's world. <laughs> Our mystery drama, A God Named Smith, was written especially for the Mystery Theater by Henry Slesser and stars Norman Rose and Russell Horton. It is sponsored in part by Greyhound Package Express and True Value Hardware Stores. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Who is Smith? What gave him the power to become a god? And what did he do with his power? There's only one man who can answer these questions, and even he could never reveal all the mysteries that made Smith the wonderment of the early 21st century. But when the biographers of Smith sought out the strange and wondrous facts of Smith's life, they came to Luke Wingate first. Go on. Have some. It's a rare vintage, 1979. I don't think so, Mr. Wingate. It's a long drive back to town. You don't mind if I help myself? No, no, of course not. Smith himself gave me this wine. A whole case of it. This happens to be the last bottle. That uh, makes it kind of historic, doesn't it? Mm, kind of. Well, go ahead. You want to know about the time that I first met Smith? Hmm? I know you've answered it before, Mr. Wingate, but... But um... you feel obliged to ask it just the same. That's no, all right. Don't mind repeating myself. You met Smith in college, didn't you? Uh, Ardmore University? That's right. I was a sophomore then, back in the 1980s. We were 20 years old. But I remember the day, all right. It was one of my hangover days. It was a Sunday, and I was content to sleep until Monday's classes. But then I heard this voice. Pardon me, is uh, this Mr. Wingate's room? He was something I didn't expect. A long-headed kid about 12 or 13, with a sad mouth and hair the color of dry straw. He was carrying a suitcase that was putting a strain on his thin arms and shoulders. 
I'm sorry to disturb you, but I was told to come up here. My name is Smith. Then I remembered who he was. For a month, we'd been hearing rumors about a boy prodigy who was being transferred from Crowley College to Ardmore. Obviously, Smith had the misfortune to run into Gil Curtis on his first day. Curtis was the class clown, a senior with a heavy-handed sense of humor. Mr. Curtis said something about getting a left-handed monkey wrench from you? Of course, I told the kid what he was dealing with, that Curtis was only pulling a stale old joke. He didn't think it was funny. I told him to forget it, that it was typical of the stuff Curtis laid on the freshman. Oh, I'm not a freshman. I'm a senior. He was a senior at 13 years of age? I found out that he was only 12. I learned that two weeks later when I was crossing the campus and saw Gil Curtis himself intercept Smith. Hey, Junior, whatever happened to that left-handed monkey wrench? Oh, uh, sorry it took me so long to find one. Oh, you finally did, huh? Yes, I, I did. Do you want to see it? <laughs> hey, Luke, did you hear what the kid said? <laughs> He's got a left-handed wrench. It's in my room. I'm staying at the Ivy House if you'd like to take a look at it. Oh, I sure would, Junior. Uh, you want to come along, Luke? I did go along. I went to Smith's small, bare room on the third floor of the Ivy House. A room that looked even more cramped due to a conglomeration of electrical apparatus that he had brought with him from Crowley. Okay, kid. Uh, let's see it. Smith threaded his way through the confused mass of equipment and picked up a shiny new wrench from some canvas-covered object in the corner. He handed it to Curtis, who hefted it in his right hand. Left-handed monkey wrench, huh? <laughs> hey, you're not just a genius, kid. You're a comedian, right? Try it, Mr. Curtis. Here's a nut and bolt. I watched Curtis grab the nut and bolt and apply the wrench. No matter how he twisted the nut, it wouldn't turn. He examined the screw thread, certain that it was reversed. I told you, Mr. Curtis. It's a left-handed wrench. Use your left hand. I watched Curtis switch the wrench to his left hand and apply it to the nut. It turned easily off the bolt. He stared at the pieces in his hand and stalked out. It was simple enough. I just sent an ordinary wrench through a Mobius warp. It came back in a left-handed molecular arrangement. Mr. Wingate, is that when you became friends uh, after the monkey wrench episode? It's hard to describe it as friendship. But I did become the only person Smith was willing to spend his time with after classes. Smith, even at his tender age, knew more about physics, mathematics, chemistry, and cosmology than anyone on the staff. And there was a despairing mood among the faculty. Before long, I realized that my friendship with Smith was costing me the friendship of virtually every other student. That was how I became a roommate of Smith. And that was how you discovered the Bible? Yes, that Bible. It was a Saturday afternoon, and Smith had taken the train into the city to attend some scientific symposium. I was drifting about the room with the vague idea of reading a book. I took one down from Smith's shelf and was surprised to see that it was a dog-eared edition of the Old Testament. I flipped the pages and then realized that they were penciled corrections, beginning with Genesis. What did they say? Can you still remember? Oh, yes, I can remember. It simply said, In the beginning, Smith created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of Smith moved upon the face of the waters. And Smith said, Let there be light. And there was light. <laughs> 
Well, didn't you think he was just a little bit mad? I don't know what I thought. I have to admit that even though I was a professed atheist, the sight of that altered page turned me cold and fearful. Well, did you ask him about it? Oh, yes. I made the mistake of asking him. He invited me to see something. It was the large object in his room that he always kept covered with canvas. It was a cabinet about five feet high, the top enclosed with glass, and the sides studded with dials and buttons and switches. I told Smith that it resembled a coffin, and he said, Just the opposite, Luke. Things are born here, not buried. Would you like to see it work? He started to fool with the controls. The thing emitted a low-pitched whine. The glass encloses a group of non-condensable gases, like uh, hydrogen and helium. There are dust particles, too. Water, iron oxides, ice crystals, silicon compounds. You can't see them now, but they're there. Uh, just as they might form within the rotating envelope of the sun. Now, this device is activating those gases and particles at enormous speed, causing them to collide. They're being mutually exploded by each other, but they are also becoming embedded with each other's mass. Within a few minutes, you'll see them aggregate until the mass is visible to the naked eye. It was five minutes before my naked eye saw anything at all. Then I thought I could make out a pinpoint of something in the center of the cabinet. I blinked at it, and it grew larger. Another blink of the eye, and it became a ball, almost an eighth of an inch in circumference. And then came a sound, like the crash of a lightning bolt. What is that thing? What have you got in that glass box? It's a world, Luke. A what? A world. A world I made all by myself. Smith's world. <laughs> That's right. It's a small planet created out of an artificial cosmos. Right now, its heat intensity is almost great enough to shatter the retaining glass, so we'll, uh, we'll have to start the cooling process. He tugged at a switch in the panel, but I could see at once that something was wrong. Uh, uh, it's not moving. The refrigeration switch is jammed. Something's wrong. I... The strange mud-brown sphere in the cabinet was still growing in size, and now it began to glow with its own heat. Get out of here. Get everyone out of the building, Luke. Suddenly, Smith seemed like nothing more than a frightened child. I told him that we were alone in the building, and he pleaded with me to leave while he wrestled with the dials and switches in an attempt to stop the terrible process that was taking place. Get out of here, Luke. There isn't much time. Now the thing in the cabinet was glowing with white heat. I could feel the blast of it right through the retaining glass. Smith was still working feverishly at the controls, but I knew that there wasn't any more that he could do. I yanked him away from the device. He began to kick and scream. I was a great deal bigger than he was, but his strength became maniacal. I remembered something from my swimming class. Caught my right arm and let go a short, snappy punch to the chin of Smith. life, didn't you? You know what Smith said later, of course, that I was his guardian angel the day of the explosion. He called it a miracle. The miracle was that nobody was killed. The entire building was demolished. The area was radioactive for a good three months after. And, of course, Smith was expelled from Ardmore. In fact, it was on the day of his departure that he told me the only facts I'd ever learned about his childhood. His father had died when he was three. His mother had been a God-fearing woman who was frightened by her son's precocious abilities and thought that a heavy dose of religion would balance things out. 
You know, Smith had learned the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, word for word. But then his mother had died, too, and an uncle named Howard Cherney had been appointed Smith's guardian. Cherney made quite a bit of money out of Smith's genius, didn't he? Oh, yes. Cherney made a lot of money. But can I ask you something, Mr. Wingate? Did Smith ever thank you for saving his life? Oh, yes. He did that same day. Thank you for my life, Luke. My life is very important to me. To you, too, for that matter. You'll see. Then he climbed aboard the train, and I didn't see him again for six years. And when I did, he was well on his way to becoming Smith, the god, the man who created his own world. Smith, the god. Can any mortal ever reach such a position? Even a scientific genius who can build worlds out of dust particles and electrical energy. Is that enough to qualify for the job? We'll find out how and when Smith made the attempt when we return with Act Two. Past since the Ivy House at Ardmore University vanished in a cloud of charged atoms, leaving the ground bristling with dangerous radiation, leaving the memory of a strange young man with the ability to both build and destroy. Luke Wingate heard nothing from his friend in those six years, but Luke was busy building something himself, his own career in journalism. Of course, I knew you worked for the Herald, Mr. Wingate. I was lucky. There were 40 guys in my graduating class trying to get that job. But I had a gimmick. I used my association with Smith to develop a series of articles about the dangers of scientific experimentation. For three years, I became a full-fledged reporter. And after the fifth year, I finally earned a byline. The first person I told the news to was named Evelyn. Evelyn Wilson, of course. The actress. Yes. Young as she was, she was ranked as one of the top actresses on the stage. She never made a movie, you know. Not that she wasn't asked. As a matter of fact, it was Howard Cherney who asked her. That was how Smith came into my life again. When I saw Evelyn with this older man and asked her who he was. Oh, Howard Cherney's filthy rich. He's some kind of patent attorney. With something like 10 or 20 million. Oh, that's nice for you. He wants to produce a movie. Can you imagine starring me? Yeah. Journey. Gee, that, that name's familiar. Smith had an uncle by that name. Oh, you mean that creepy college friend of yours? He became Smith's guardian after Smith's mother died. Maybe the patents are Smith's. Maybe my creepy college friend is a millionaire, too. How nice. You must introduce me. Sure enough, Journey turned out to be Smith's guardian a man who'd made a fortune on Smith's genius. Cherney told Evelyn that his nephew was living in seclusion in a suburb in upstate New York. I found out where and wrote Smith a letter. He replied at once and invited me to visit. Had he changed much? Well, he was taller, broader, but still a youth, not even 19 years old, but with eyes as old as Methuselah's. I congratulated him on his success, but he said, Yes, I've done very well. I'm almost ready for it now. Ready for some real developments. 
I meant your inventions. Evelyn, the girl I wrote you about, she says that your uncle is loaded. I guess that you must be fairly well off, too. My inventions? My, uh, toys, you mean. That's all they were, Luke. The only reason I bothered with them was to get money for equipment. Uh, how much does my uncle have? Oh, I don't know. Ten, twenty million, Evelyn says. Don't you know? No, I haven't kept track of the finances. I've left that to him. I suppose I'll have to start thinking of money soon. I'll be needing a great deal very soon. What for? Well, you ought to know, Luke. You saw the original model. You don't mean that world-building machine. Come have a look. It was very much like the scale model Smith had built six years before. But this cabinet was 40 feet across and some eight feet high. The banks of dials and switches and relays and buttons were multiplied a hundred times from the original. Basically, it employs the same principles of the earlier model, but there are important refinements. I've learned to create worlds with their own satellites in any orbital relationship I choose. But I have a far more difficult project underway now. I, uh, I suppose I'm ready to concede failure. That doesn't sound like you, Smith. What could make you fail? Life. Life? Life? You, you mean you want to create people for these little worlds of yours? I've given up, Luke. I'll be satisfied just to create the new world itself. That's what I'm going to do. Build a world. That's right. A better world, Luke. A world without fault. And a world without end. A world where nature is subservient to man and man subservient to God. A world where man can live in peace and harmony and in the comfort of eternal truth. <laughs> How do you like my little speech? Smith, are you serious? Deadly serious, Luke. Within two or three years, I'm going out into space and add another planet to our solar system. Another planet? Another Earth. I can do it, you know. It's all a matter of time. And of money, of course. Enormous amounts of money. How much did you say my Uncle Howard has? Uh, between 10 and 20 million. Yeah. Yes, that'll do for a start. D do you have any connections in the stock market? Oh, no. Doesn't matter. I can learn what I don't know. Luke, would you like to join me in this enterprise? Me? To do what? To assist me, to be my companion, my friend. Uh, I know it's a great deal to ask, but I... I'd like you to be on Smith's world, Luke. When I create it, people it, bring it to a state of perfection. No, no, Smith, I, I don't think so. You're being foolish, Luke. I'm offering you the opportunity to be my principal assistant... To be God's right hand. Thanks, Smith, but no. I like the world I have. And don't forget, I'm an old atheist, remember? I don't believe in gods. Not even when they're you. It was another six months before I heard the name of Smith again. I heard it from Lou Briggs, the Herald's financial editor. You know Smith, don't you? Yes, I know him. Why? Been following the Wall Street news? Not particularly. What's happening? Your friend Smith decided to take a flyer at the market. The talk on the street is if he keeps it up, he might make the biggest killing in the history of the market. You look worried about it, Briggs. Well, he continues to be successful. He'll cause a panic. Uh, excuse me, Briggs. Wingate. 
Luke? It's Evelyn. Oh, yeah. Hi, how are you? I'm terrible. Luke, an awful thing has happened. Can you see me right now? What's the matter? It's Howard. Howard Cherney. He's dead. He shot himself. Something to do with the stock market. I didn't think people did that kind of thing anymore. But he did it. That was how Smith's uncle died. That was how the fortunes of thousands of so-called market experts were wiped out. But Smith had his millions, and Smith had his dream. And shortly after that, I had no job. I don't understand it, Luke. Why would the paper fire you? I'll tell you why. It's because Smith told them to. From what I heard, Smith bought a controlling interest in the Herald. One of his first acts was to get me canned. What's so flattering about that? I wrote Smith and accused him of getting me bounced. And this is the telegram he sent me. Oh. Uh, you're correct. However, greater employment opportunity awaits you immediately. Salary $100,000 a year. Reply at once if interested. Smith. Now, you understand? He's trying to buy a friend, Evelyn. Don't you see? You are going to accept. Aren't you, Luke? Oh. A hundred thousand's a lot of money. I couldn't make that in five years on the paper. Oh, with a salary like that, we could even get married, couldn't we? But you didn't marry, did you? No. No, we didn't marry. At first, because I was too busy. Because I was the first employee of Smith Incorporated to move into the 87-story Smith Building in Flushing Meadows. The first of some 80,000 employees, including 3,000 engineers and computer programmers, 6,000 scientists in every conceivable field. <laughs> I still have the first announcement ad prepared by Smith Incorporated. Do you remember this? May I see it? Wanted one million superior men and women. Yes, it's a famous document. Who wrote it, do you know? Smith himself, of course. Listen. If you believe you have superior and or mental capabilities and are interested in joining other men and women of your caliber in the most important enterprises in human history, you are invited to write for full details concerning the establishment of a new planetary home for the human race. Well, you know the rest. The world thought it was a joke, of course. But there were more than 25 million applications. Smith was pleased by the response, but his happiness was short-lived. When the testing procedure began, it became apparent that the Smith standards were far too demanding to produce the one million superior men and women demanded by Smith. After almost a year of testing, only 160,000 candidates were marked acceptable. And what did you do, Mr. Wingate? Me? <laughs> well, I was given the title of assistant to the president. I was paid regularly, stationed in a six-window office the size of a small railroad terminal... And given nothing to do. You were right, Luke. You were absolutely right. Smith wanted to buy himself a friend. Well, Evelyn, there are worse things to be. Are there? Oh, I want you to quit, Smith. I was wrong to tell you to take this job. Ev, it won't be for long. I swear it. Oh. In another year, he'll have that manufactured world ready, and then it'll be over. We can take our money and run. Do you really believe that? What makes you think that you won't have to go to Smith's world, too? Oh, he'll want you there, Luke. He needs you. Since when does a god need anyone? He'll get what he wants, Luke. 
quit now. Well, we're through. Oh, Ev, you don't mean that. I do, Luke. I'd rather lose you now than later. The next day, I sent my letter of resignation to Smith. And that night, I received a telegram. It said, Accept your resignation with reluctance. However, implore you to perform one last important errand. Please visit Dr. Martin Corcoran at Salo Laboratory, San Francisco, to enlist his interest in our enterprise. So you went to San Francisco? Yes, I went. It was a long and difficult task, convincing Dr. Corcoran, and it took me 35 days to get his affirmative answer. My first stop when I returned home was Evelyn's apartment. And there was something strangely different about her. Of course, there's nothing the matter. I feel wonderful. But you look different. What have you been doing since I left? I've been working. Rehearsing. Rehearsing? Yes. I've been given a part in a new play. Oh, is that all it is? Oh, it's a wonderful play, Luke. The finest I've ever read. It's a chance like nothing I've ever had before. That's why I'm so excited. But, uh, there's something I have to tell you about it. What? Well, it, it has something to do with Smith. Smith? He hired Arthur Trumbull to write the play. It's about... Well, it, it, it's about Smith's world, I suppose. Oh, but it's very beautiful. Well, okay. If Smith's behind it, the play's bound to be a smash. Oh, I knew you'd understand, Luke. Yeah. What's the part like? I play Eve. It was a month before the play opened that the first Smith space vehicle was launched from Death Valley. Its time of departure, its cargo, its destination, its purpose were all kept secret. Two days later, another ship was launched. And days apart, two other ships headed out to join the other Smith vessels on some mysterious mission in outer space. I had no idea how Smith planned to build his world away from the controlled conditions of the laboratory. But that was his problem. My problem was Evelyn. Few of us who were there will ever forget the first performance of Arthur Trumbull's The World. The excitement crackled like a tangible electrical force in the huge theater where the play was having its premiere. It's quite a play. Some critics think it's a religious play, but only those who knew Smith could realize the real significance of its message. The terrible meaning concealed in all that glib, poetic dialogue. I knew that Smith had subtly guided Trumbull's hand. It ended up as a message of praise of God. A God named Smith. Pardon me, Mr. Wingate, but uh, wasn't that also the night that, um, well, you know... Yes, yes, that was the night I got drunk. Right after the curtain came down. I... I tried to see Evelyn backstage, but I couldn't get to her through the mob. I went out and spent the next three hours in a neighborhood bar getting thoroughly stoned. Then I went up to her apartment and used the key I had. Look! Well, well, well. <laughs> what do you know? You've got company. Hello, Luke. Smith, what a surprise. I... I'm sorry, Luke. I'm, I'm really very sorry. Oh, it's not your fault, Smith. No, sir, it's not your fault. It's my fault for just barging in here. Oh, I, Luke, I... Luke, please try to understand. It's okay, Ev. No kidding. It's my fault, like I said. I I shouldn't still be using that... that key that you gave me, huh? 
Here, Smith, you better take the key now, along with all the other privileges. Only, only, I don't suppose you really need a key, do you? A god ought to be able to walk through walls. I never said I was a god, Luke. Oh, but you are. You are, Smith. You're a god, and you you have to be worshipped. Luke, don't. Oh, please, Luke, get get off your knees. Thank you, oh, Lord. Thank you for all our blessings. Thank you for my salary, Lord. And then thank you for my bonus, Lord. Please stop this, Luke. Smith. Smith is my shepherd. I shall not want. You're drunk. Hail to our Lord of the universe, Lord of all creation. Hail to Smith the God. And so Smith the God has lost his first disciple. But will that make any difference in his plans for the future? Will that change his mind about building a new home for the human race? And what will become of Smith's world when it enters the orbit of Earth? We'll find out shortly in Act Three. Smith's World, a planet the size of Mercury, 3,000 miles in diameter, provided with an atmosphere perhaps even more favorable for the sustainment of life than our own, became part of the orbital pattern of the solar system, equidistant to Earth and the planet Mars. The exodus from Earth to Smith's World coincided with the most disastrous economic panic in history precipitating riots in a dozen countries, causing hardships for millions left behind. It was a year of hell for many, but for Luke Wingate, it was a year of oblivion. Yes, it's true. I spent that entire year at the Boomsocket Sanitarium, but there was never any question about my sanity. I was nothing more than a Simon Pure alcoholic. After Evelyn made her decision to join Smith on his world, I sought solace in the brown bottle and drank myself into the place. When I left, I took a job with a low-circulation picture magazine and tried to forget. But of course, you didn't. No. No, I wasn't allowed to forget. Because one night, the ghost came. The ghost? A ghost figure standing at the foot of my bed, shimmering as if in waves of heat staring at me with hollow eyes. It was Smith. Luke? Who are you? You know me, Luke. I am Smith. Now, don't be frightened. You're not seeing phantoms. This is merely an electronic projection of my own image, a purely mechanical trick. But where are you? I am on Smith's world in my own chambers. What do you want? I want you on Smith's world, Luke. I'm offering you paradise. Will you refuse me for the sake of Evelyn alone? Is that why you reject me? I won't worship you, Smith. You're not my god. I'm very sorry, Luke. If I ever start praying, Smith, I'll mention you in my prayers. I'll ask forgiveness for you. Forgiveness. I suppose that was the first contact Smith made with Earth since his departure. But it wasn't the last. Five months after that, the first Smith vessel made a return trip to Earth, 
containing a delegation appointed to establish relations with the planet of their birth. Trading began with Smith's scientists exchanging electronic and mechanical marvels for the products of Earth, things which seemed to be unavailable on Smith's paradise. Simple produce like oranges and lemons, tomatoes and lettuce, and all things made of wood. Smith's world was evidently not as perfect as he suggested. Mr. Wingate, uh, can you tell me about the assassination plot? Well, the anti-Smith League was formed without my knowledge. But they did enlist your help. Yes. And that was how you met Alita Morgan? Yes. Wasn't she angry because her fiancé passed the Smith test and she didn't? No, no, you have that wrong. Alita never took the tests. Only her fiancé. And he left without her. But you did attend a meeting at Miss Morgan's home. Yes, I attended the meeting. I heard George Burgess speak there. He was a professor of sociology, I believe. No, history. Ladies and gentlemen, almost three-quarters of a million people have made the transference from Earth to Smith's world. It is the caliber of the people we're losing, our best scientists, our engineers, our artists and writers, many of our best business executives. We must be realistic. The attractions of Smith's world are great, but the drain on this world is cataclysmic. The crisis point looms for all of us. A crisis that will result in chaos. But what can we do, Professor? We must fight with every means at our command. With legislation, with pressure, with sanctions. Or even with force. Oh, we'd lose. I know Smith. He would defeat us militarily. We outnumber him by a billion. His brain power is greater. It, it won't work, I swear it. I know a way which will work. And what's that? There's only one way to fight Smith. We have to kill him. So that was when you finally took the Smith tests. We took something else first. The marriage vows. Why was that? I mean, was it because you were in love or because you knew that married couples were more desirable on Smith's world? For both reasons. And what happened? Oh, you know what happened. Uh, please, Mr. Wingate. All right. We took the tests. I realized that Smith would hear of our applications, of course. We left for Smith's world within the week. For only one purpose. Yes. To kill its god. Smith's world was nothing like its legend. It was a practical planet. Its terrain was almost Spartan in its simplicity. There were only artificial trees. There was mathematical precision in the areas marked for farming, for residences, for recreation. There was no surface traffic at all. The air was used for all transportation. Uniformed Smith officials were everywhere. Gray-suited men with no weapons and polite manners. But there were so many of them. So many. And when did you see Smith himself? That first day, we were taken from the crowd of new arrivals and brought to the white steeple of a building where Smith made his headquarters. We were scanned for weapons, and my belt buckle set off a warning buzzer. I removed my belt, and we passed inspection. But if you had no weapon, how... Well, we had one. But it wouldn't respond to Smith's warning system. And in that moment, I lost some respect for Smith's godlike powers. About this weapon... It... it was in Alita's hair. Her hair? I saw her hand go to her head, as if to pat a stray lock back in place. She took out the thin bamboo cylinder. It was an ancient, 
primitive weapon. Maybe the most fitting kind to end the life of a super scientist. A blowgun? Yes, she put it to her lips. At a puff of her breath, sent the poisoned wooden splinter right into the heart of Smith. But the attempt failed. Yes, it failed. Because the poisoned splinter went right through the body of Smith. Or what we both had presumed was the body of Smith. He was aware of what had happened, of course. And he looked at me sadly. I must congratulate you, Luke, on the simple ingenuity of your plan. Other assassins have used far more sophisticated techniques and failed. But you almost succeeded. Except for one thing, Smith. You're not here. No, my friend, I'm not here. My projection system works very well on short distances, as you can see. Yes, it's perfect, Smith. Like your world. But you didn't really mean it was perfect, did you? No. No, I didn't mean it. Because on the perfect world, there wouldn't be any need for prisons. And there was one on Smith's world, as Alita and I soon learned. It was underground, hidden from the sight of the contented citizens... Long stone corridors leading from one dismal chamber to another. It was more a dungeon than a prison. A storage place for the human refuse of Smith's perfect world. The earth looks red tonight. What? What did you say? My cell window faces west. I can see the earth glowing at night. It glows redder and redder all the time. They say that a day will come when the earth will bleed... And Smith's world will burn. What did his words mean? Well, it was a code. A rallying cry for the revolution that was brewing against Smith. I learned that there were 3,000 prisoners in those dungeons. Not thieves and murderers, but rebels. How did you escape from that prison, Mr. Wingate? Uh, I've heard so many conflicting stories. Well, most of them are false. I didn't overpower any guards. I didn't use any clever stratagem. You see... I was released by a friend. Luke! Luke, wake up! It's Evelyn. What? Uh, Evelyn? What are you doing here? I'm not here. I'm at home, in the Citadel. Then you're just a ghost of projections. Yes. But Smith doesn't know what I'm doing. He's in the farmlands. There's some kind of trouble there. Then you know about his machine. Oh, Luke. I've been so wrong. About him. About you. About what I wanted. Evelyn, why did you come here? Something's happening. There have been strikes, riots, outbreaks. I hear talk about something called the bleeding earth. Oh, I'm so frightened, Luke. Please help me. I'm the one who needs the help, Evelyn. I'm the prisoner, not you. No. I'm a prisoner, too. Get me out of here. Use your authority as Smith's wife to get me free. Now. Right now, before he comes back. <laughs> That was how I made my escape from the Smith prison. I was brought back to Smith Citadel as a guest instead of a prisoner. I found Evelyn waiting for me in Smith's chamber. Luke, what was that? I don't know. It sounded like an explosion somewhere. The sky. Look how red it is. I've almost forgotten what the sky looks like, Evelyn. Oh, come to the window. There must be flames somewhere, flames in the east. Oh, the farmland. They're burning the fields. Oh, those, those could be fuel storage tanks. Oh, Luke, 
I was so frightened. You said that there was trouble on the farmlands? Oh, hold me, please. I'm shaking all over. Evelyn, listen to me. Luke, I was so wrong. I've missed you so much. I was so terribly wrong. Well, well, well. (gasps) What's fair is fair, isn't it, Luke? That's what the Bible says, of course. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, even a kiss for a kiss. Your world is burning, Smith. Yes, I know. I've just seen the farmers put the torch to it with their own hands. It started then. Smith, has it started? The bleeding earth? You see the mistake I made, Luke? I should have developed my own form of life. Instead, I depended on the miserable ingrates who made a mess of the planet Earth who were making a mess of my world, too. Is it really your world, Smith? Created by your marvelous world-building machine? Why are we just standing here? They'll burn us down, too. What about it, Smith? This is God's world, isn't it? Not yours. Your fine machine didn't really work in the limits of space. You didn't create Smith's world. Your ships captured this rock from the debris of space. They steered it into the orbit of the solar system. You're a great scientist, Smith, but you're not a god. Only God can make worlds. Smith, do something. I intend to. This citadel, this building, they'll come here finally. They'll storm it, crying words of liberty. Oh, but they'll be terribly surprised. You see, this isn't a building at all. The only chambers are for Evelyn and myself. The rest of the structure is an atomic stockpile. If the rebels come here, they'll destroy Smith's world and themselves. Oh, good Lord, Lou. We have to get away. There's a helicopter on the roof. Smith, come with us. Look at him. He's on his knees. Smith, there's no reason for any of Smith's world to be destroyed. My God. My God. Why has thou forsaken me? Hey, Luke. Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, oh my God, I cry in the daytime and thou hearest not. How many made it to the spaceport, Mr. Wingate, before the final atomic reaction? Only 20,000, they say. All those others, they died out there. Smith's world became the tombstone of the solar system. And, of course, you found your wife on one of those spaceships. Yes, yes, I found the leader. You must have been very happy. Yes, I was happy. For the first time in my life, I said a prayer. So, Smith the God is no more. And Smith's world is nothing but a rock orbiting the solar system. A useless object? Maybe not. Maybe it will always appear in the skies of Earth as a memento of man's folly. Of what can happen when men not merely forget their gods, but try to take their place. We'll be back shortly. wasn't the only person who ever dreamed of having a world of his own. We all rule our own kingdoms just by using our imagination. 
We hope our story exercised your imagination and that you'll come back for more miracles and more mystery at our next meeting. Our cast included Norman Rose, Russell Horton, Evie Juster, and Bob Caliban. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. Radio Mystery Theater was sponsored in part by Buick Motor Division. This is E.G. Marshall inviting you to return to our mystery theater for another adventure in the macabre. Until next time, pleasant dreams.